Mmm. Could you uh, pass the salt? Absolutely. I think I underseasoned these X-Men paninis. Oh, Chris, could you get that? Our guest is here. Sure thing. Hi, Matt Wilson. Come on in. Hello, Chris's. Wait, I hear some mouth sounds. What are you eating? Comic books. Would you like some? You're, you're, you're do- eating what now? After reading Craven's Last Hunt, we felt really inspired. Since Craven ate spiders prior to his fight with Spider-Man, we're eating comic books to try to really get in their mindset. Okay, there is a weird logic there, but I... I Chewing mm. on the ink and paper really helps you to understand the inherent bombastic strangeness that's present in these books. Would you like to try some Thor de Fisk? It has a delicious Viking flavor. You know... This was not on the outline I got. Oh, you'll like it if you try it. Have some amazing Spider-Man-style pizza. Uh, you know what? I I don't want to be rude, but no thanks. People usually pay me to try food that I don't want to eat. Oh, I'm sure we can find something. Ah, how about some Avengers tartare? I really don't... Wait, what? What's that? Tartare, you say? Okay, yeah. I gotta try that. Pass that over. Oh, great. Glad to have something you like. You know, this isn't half bad. Now that we're digging in, y'all want to talk about some comics? Yes! I'm Christina Edelman. And I'm Chris Edelman. And this is Chris's on Infinite Earths. The podcast where nothing will ever be the same. Welcome, readers, to our second episode of Craven's Last Hunt. This is our wrap-up. Yes, and uh, today, other than just the two of us, your wonderful normal hosts, we have a guest host with us today, Mr. Matt D. Wilson from War Rocket Ajax, author of Copernicus Jones, Robot Detective, and his most recent project, Everything Will Be Okay. Matt, welcome to the show. I'm busting out of the sewers, y'all. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Well, Matt, we're really happy to have you on. It was it's always very cool to have more experienced comics podcasters come on to help us out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, experience, yes. Uh, I, I quality, I can't speak for that uh, in any way. But uh, I, this is a formative comic book story for me, so I'm always happy to jump on anywhere and talk about it. Yeah, we strangely enough, neither have of us had read this. And I've I've kind of got a bit more of a comics background than Christy, but oh, even definitely. somehow it was like a blind spot for me. And so digging into this, I was like, um, this is incredible. And I'm really thrilled we covered this. Um, I've been kind of joking with people on and on the podcast and off the podcast that this is maybe not technically our purview, since we tend to cover crossover events. But we decided it was okay because it's in three separate titles. Yeah, three titles crossover. Look, what is more comic <laughs> books than a technicality? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. All right. Well, uh, before we get into the discussion with Matt, Christy, do you want to do our? Nope. We have a patron to thank. We we have a Kofi donator we have a to Kofi. thank. That's right. Uh, thank you to Josh Garvey who gave to our Kofi today. If you want to give to our Kofi, it's www.ko-fi.com. Slash Chris is on Infinite Earths. That's the one where I decided to do the long name. 
Um, you can give in increments of $3 if uh, that's your bag. Thank you, Josh. Uh, we'll make it up to you a little bit later. I've got something in mind uh, down the road. All right. Thank you, Josh. And before we get any further, let's dig into our summary. Web of Spider-Man number 32, written by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Mike Zeck, inked by Bob McCloud, colored by Janet Jackson, lettered by Rick Parker, edited by Jim Salakrep. These credits will remain the same for all three issues. Peter Parker is momentarily safe in a warm space before hallucinating Ned Leeds, his friend who recently died. Ned greets Peter and then decays in front of him after Peter fearfully declares him dead. Peter, still hallucinating, sees himself as the spider, much as Craven did, only to be ripped apart in a tunnel. Peter crawls out of the spider, symbolizing that he was never the spider. He was Peter Parker, the man. His weakness of being a man is also his greatest strength. Peter remembers Craven shooting him and cries out for Mary Jane, ripping free of the earth. Turns out the rifle shot was probably packed with weird sedatives, which made Spider-Man in a state of near death. And now we're back! Peter stumbles into Craven's pad and grabs a newspaper, both seeing the cannibal killer story and his two-week absence. He is not thrilled. Peter, enraged, fights some wild animals, again, maybe in his head, before confronting two of Craven's henchguys. He proclaims to himself that he'll deal with Craven, but as a man, not the spider. Craven seems to sense that Spider-Man is coming, at least soon. Spider-Man goes back to Mary Jane's apartment, missing the two weeks that were stolen from him. After their, um, reunion, Spider-Man tells Mary Jane he's going back out. She tries to stop him, but relents once Peter proclaims his resolve to stop the man that murdered in his name. Meanwhile, Vermin is trapped in an electric cage that he bangs against futilely. Spider-Man swings out the window into the night, and after a while, his spider sense kicks in. He leaps into a nearby window to find, still clad in the spider costume, Craven the Hunter. Amazing Spider-Man number 294. We start with an inner monologue from Craven about how his mother was trapped in the cage of life forced on her by leaving Russia and moving to the U.S. He blames her death by suicide on the spider. Meanwhile, we see Vermin still in his cage. See, comics are a visual medium. Spider-Man, still very justifiably angry, pummels Craven. Craven does not fight back, though, saying that he has already won. Very villain of him. What he means, though, is that he could have killed Spider-Man, and that it basically means he did. Also, Craven took his place and did what he could never do. Defeat Vermin. Craven takes him to where Vermin is locked up, meanwhile having an inner monologue about the nature of Spider-Man being the man as well as the spider. The spider, to Craven, is an entity responsible for all of man's sufferings. Craven gloats while internally being thrilled at his freedom from the influence of the spider. However, he feels a slight sadness to this freedom before he lets Vermin free. Craven goads Vermin into attacking Spider-Man after our good boy Spidey won't hit the free villain. Craven needs to see that Spider-Man still can't beat Vermin to prove his own superiority. At first, Vermin is ripping Spidey to bits in the fight, as Spider-Man won't fight back. However, the rage of being buried alive boils up in Peter, and he brutally beats Vermin in his anger at Craven. Spider-Man comes to his senses and won't strike the final blow. Vermin rewards this kindness with more violence, but Craven fends him off, saying Vermin's point has been made. Vermin flees into the night. 
Spider-Man weakly tells Craven that they need to catch Vermin, since he is a cannibal murderer and all that. Craven helps Spider-Man up, finally seeing the good in him. He states to himself that while the spider is still within the hero, Craven's spider has been vanquished. He sees himself as the spider to Spider-Man, stating to the hero that he will never hunt again. Peter leaps out the window in search of vermin before Craven, in a twisted sense of peace brought on by finally feeling a semblance of happiness, takes his own life, seemingly as part of a plan. Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number 132. Spider-Man crawls through the sewer, reminding himself repeatedly that he is not dead. He simultaneously knows he must confront Vermin, but he is also very much afraid and tired from his ordeal. These two motivations play through his head as he comes across a pile of rats controlled by Vermin. Spider-Man fends off the rats, only to come across Vermin, who attacks him from the fetid water. Two detectives receive the confessions of Craven, which will seemingly absolve Spider-Man of the murders committed while Craven impersonated him. Mirroring the first issue, one of Craven's henchmen digs a grave. Spider-Man starts to doubt whether or not he is actually alive and that perhaps he is still trapped in the grave, but still manages to overpower Vermin using some classic Spidey stealth. We see again the fear of Vermin returning, specifically the fear of being hurt or killed by Spider-Man. Spidey cracks Vermin one and then regrets it as it was done out of fear. He explains that Craven was the one who had beaten Vermin before and that he wanted to bring Vermin out of the darkness. Vermin is really not a fan of the light and angrily pursues Spider-Man, who fearfully retreats to the surface. Vermin crawls into the light, only to be paralyzed by the world above and even almost struck by a truck. Spider-Man saves him at the last moment, and the police snag Vermin. Spider-Man swings away before telling Vermin he is going to get help with his condition from Reed Richards, a man famous for fixing conditions. Spider-Man returns home to Mary Jane, who is overjoyed to see him. Spidey is stoked to be back doing Spidey stuff and seems unconcerned with Craven as of now. The final pages of the comic have a funeral being held for Craven, with a rat and a spider trapped in the hole that the coffin lies in, being covered in dirt. So, Matt, you said this was a really formative comic for you, so would you say you like this comic? Yes. I, I do. I uh, I can see the flaws in it in retrospect, but in my youth, I just loved this story because it felt so literary, I guess is the term. It felt like I was reading a piece of literature. Uh, I felt like I was reading something mature that wasn't necessarily what you think of when you think of a mature reader's book, you know, something that had weight and value in the form of a comic book. And so, and this, this was before I ever read so many of the other kind of concurrent books that kind of got that weight to them, your, your watchmen's and so forth. So it, it just made me feel smart to read this comic. <laughs> Uh, this is this is fair. I, w- I wish I would have discovered this comic when I was younger, because I probably would have eaten it up, and I would have felt like I was very cool for reading it. Like, when you go... Uh, when you're going to the library, and you decide that you're done with that YA stuff when you're, like, 12 or 13, and go to, like, the adult fantasy section, yeah. which, is what, which is what I did, and was like... I, I definitely I- did that, and I wound up picking on some weird stuff. <laughs> probably weir- weirder than this. I think it's still pretty, pretty good... 
book. I was surprised, Matt, uh, and we mentioned this a little on the last episode, about a lot of stuff down the line that kind of pulled from this in that Craven's Last Hunt did some things kind of in a metaphorical sense that they eventually decided to take very literally. Yeah, that's true. Um, the the stuff about Spider-Man being the spider. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, eventually J. Michael Straczynski's like, no, he's literally the spider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the, all the totemistic stuff, I think you can absolutely draw to that. And there are a number of spiritual and direct sequels to this story which is always the sign of a good comic book story or at least a uh, sort of a groundbreaking comic book story is when someone years later decides hey let's do that again (laughs) yeah we kind of just ended one in the in the really current amazing spider-man run yeah the two that i can think of that jump out to me are grim hunt Mm-hmm. from probably eight or nine years ago now, which involved the revival of Sergei Kravinov. Mm-hmm. And then there was in the J.M. DeMattis run of Spectacular Spider-Man in the 90s, which, boy, I was into. I was into so hard. And and it actually, I didn't read this story when it came out in the 80s because I was four. But um, I read it years later, a few years later, because I really got into the J.M. DeMattis Spectacular Spider-Man run. And part of that run involves Sergei's son, Alexei, mm-hmm. returning. And there's a whole connection with the chameleon that happens there. And there's a lot of direct references back to the story in that story. So I, I, I'm one of a, probably a select few <laughs> who have read that one. But it's, it's very much a spiritual sequel to this, too. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that later, like you were, you were very much enamored by this with your early reads, but later on you recognize some of the flaws in yeah. it. What do you consider the flaws? I, well, for one, it follows trends of comics of that day to a level that I did not recognize at the time that I first read it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the obvious trends that I think people would draw this comparisons to would be Watchmen, like I mentioned, which had come out a year earlier. Dark Knight Returns had come out a year earlier. And the the whole just notion of kind of making superheroes darker. Um, yes. That was that was happening in Spider-Man for starting around here. Mm-hmm. Um it it happened more and more in through into the 90s, but this was definitely part of that darker superheroes trend. And then formally, I actually caught this on the most recent reading I had of this book, uh, kind of in preparation for doing this. I don't think I had ever noticed before how formally similar this is to Batman Year One, which had come out the same year, maybe six months earlier. Yeah. Huh, I forgot. I, for some reason, I in my head, year one came out a couple of years later. But no, that is absolutely true. It was all 1987. And year one has the same like handwritten caption mm-hmm. boxes. Uh, the art. Yeah, I, you guys talked about Mike Zek changing his art style so drastically mm-hmm. from Secret Wars. 
Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was necessarily him doing house style for Secret Wars or doing kind of a darker, heavier noir style for this book. I just, it was just so obviously different. Yeah, I think it's a little of both. Uh huh. But I also get the sense that aping might be too harsh of a word, Mm -hmm. but he's trying to maybe do a bit of an impression of David Mazzucchelli on Batman Year One. With the right. framing and the shadows and like the extreme close-ups on faces, um, and and just in the page layouts, it's strikingly similar to Batman Year One, um, which again I had not fully comprehended or noticed until I read it most recently. When I was kind of, I I noticed the f- sort of formal aspects of comics more and more the older I get. So I, I that really stood out to me this time. No, I, I I didn't even think about it. I haven't read Year One for years, and I don't think I've like pushed Year One <laughs> enough as something you need to read. Because no. so Matt Christie is the best in that like the classics <laughs> mean nothing to her. Yeah, wow. uh, I was like Christie, you need to read this comic Watchmen, and you're like, oh, you mean that trash movie? There's no way I'm, I'm reading this comic. And um, I thought like, no, 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 there's no way she's right. And so, like, recently there was, uh, there's been a series about Watchmen on, on the website Shelf Dust, where it's women writing about Watchmen. And it's just all these really good opinions from, like, a women's, woman's perspective on, like, what Watchmen fails to do. And now I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like, I don't think, I I don't think you could read this. I don't, I think you'll find all these things to be true too. Yeah. yeah, You haven't read your one, but. Yeah, I mean, year one, I think, is maybe a little bit more worth reading, but th- it also has its flaws. The art's incredible, though. And uh, I could, if you're going to ape something, right? Uh- <laughs> oh, yeah. The, I, I would say art, the art is by far the selling point of year one. Um, Mazzucchelli is one of the absolute masters of comic art. If you're going to ape anybody, ape him. <laughs> right, for sure. Um, but, like, I, I think the art holds up in year one in a way that the writing maybe does not. If you're looking for certain uh women story points for women in Watchmen, you're definitely not gonna find them in Batman Year One. Fair. They're they're even less characters and they have even less agency. So there's well, well you know, Catwoman is presented in a fairly problematic way and sure. Um that's stuff Frank Miller would explore in years to come before he was permanently lost in the bermuda triangle in the early 90s it's true i don't it's a it's real rough it would have been interesting to see what he would have made i i would i think it probably would have been kind of bad i we probably shouldn't have, <laughs> would never would have wanted to see it but i i i do think another flaw of craven's last hunt is um it's it's serious until it decides to be extremely comic booky you all talked about the the stuff with Mary Jane being kind of a victim throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's that very comic booky Mary Jane. Where's Peter? Sensibility, which was kind of her whole character when they were married, just ramped up because he's gone for two weeks. And then there's the comic bookiness of I'm sure we'll talk more about this of uh, Craven's confession. Oh my god! Yeah, it, it's it's. <laughs> It's I the little the, bow on this story. The, the photos with it. The thought that he just had somebody going around photographing him committing all of these crimes. Well, I think, we, Christy, we, we talked about last last week, like, the incredible dedication of his of his, his men, his, his, his servants, staff, his, his staff. Yeah. 
Well, the, the, you know, he had the one guy just, hey, I need you to just dig a grave today. And the guy's like, well, yeah, I guess that's what um, I'm doing. You're digging a grave this week, too. <laughs> it, follow me around, take sweet pictures. <laughs> do you, Matt, do you think that J. Jonah Jameson was was interested in this point in time? Oh, no, he wasn't the Daily Bugle head at this point. I'm not even sure where he was at this time. Yeah, this was this was a weird period where the Daily Bugle had some other owner. Right. Uh, and, and I know Robbie was the editor at this point because it's mentioned yeah. in one of these issues. <laughs> yeah. And so it it's not totally unbelievable that by the time Peter is back out on the job, there are newspaper headlines that say, you know, Spider-Man exonerated. Craven admits everything. Right. <laughs> but it it is a very neat little ending. It's it's clearly clearly James DeMattis was not particularly concerned with getting spider-man back to one and just figured out the easiest way to do that <laughs> right like it would have been really interesting to have sort of a fallout i mean this, this is something that happens in spider-man all the time like he'll get framed for something or blamed for something and then it he it lasts for several issues we just saw it in the the movie we literally just saw it in the recent movie. Uh, spoilers for everybody who has not seen that movie. Maybe we should have mentioned it beforehand. It's, we that, won't that say that. doesn't no. give away much. It's just, yeah, that's fair. Okay. But this is like the one story I feel like where it, he is immediately exonerated. I don't think I've read another Spider-Man story where he is not blamed for something and then it like comes back to haunt him several times. It even happened yeah. in the cartoon show. Like There was long periods of him being blamed oh, yeah. for things. I imagine that is a... A, part of why it feels so convenient, I'm sure, is because it was some kind of continuity need slash fix. Where for the next story, which is also one of these, where it runs through all the titles for one complete story, mm-hmm. it, which it goes back to the regular run after that. But there's an Ann Nocenti story right after this one. <sighs> Man, we should read that. And the Sinti uh, rules. And the Sinti is great. Um, <laughs> but I, I assume for that and the Sinti story or for the continuing, I think it's David Michelini at that point. It's for one of those. I'm sure there was a need for Spider-Man to be on good terms with the police. So they had to do that little that little fix where he gets, oh, Spider-Man's not a murderer after all. Right. That was Craven. I mean, I kind of love it a little bit in terms of like i mean craven's got his whole master plan it just makes me kind of love craven a little bit i don't know forgive him for it a little bit like you also have the unique perspective of first encountering craven for the most part in squirrel girl i know and and i really just want to like him and (laughs) look look at this he just he you know, he undid it all. He just had to prove something to himself and then, you know, questionable decisions regarding suicide. But he wrapped it all up for Spider-Man. No ill will. How sweet. <laughs> it, I mean, this does kind of boil down to Craven really needing some actual therapy and deciding to do this as therapy instead. Yeah. Oh, which I, I feel like there's a lot of super there's a lot of supervillain stories that are not unlike that. Heck, the the newest Craven story that just happened is not dissimilar from that premise. It just just recently wrapped up, which I guess is kind of an unfortunate portrayal of mental illness. It is, but I don't think it's assigning supposed, it to I, villains. No, and I one of the critiques of this book I think from a lot of people was that 
the 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 end with Craven's end. Yeah, was like glorifying suicide. But when I read it, I I thought it was still very tragic, and that this was kind of the way he he felt that he was finished. I I didn't think it was that way. And apparently, one of the sequels they tried to address that a little bit more because J M Demattis was kind of frustrated with that critique, and he was like, "No, that's not the way I meant it." But it was. It is just. It's very. It's like a Spider-Man story, kind of, and a Craven story, most of. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I felt like this was actually barely a Spider-Man story. Yeah, which is, I don't I, know. I I would agree that it's it's almost entirely focused on Craven, but mm-hmm. it does have that one moment of really good Spider-Man stuff yeah, that I am totally good. here for. I and in in for me that's. Maybe the most redeeming thing about it is that the the one moment of of Spider Man really being Spider Man, and I I don't want to tip my hat too much for my accolades later, but the the that moment I think makes the story and and turns it around because there's a a question I think because essentially there's a moment where Craven sees. Spider-Man's humanity and goodness mm-hmm. and realizes that he can't continue to kind of torture him anymore. And that's the point where he he lets first he lets Vermin go, then he lets Spider-Man go. Then he shoots himself and he leaves behind his confession. And you have to wonder if the the suicide and the confession were part of the plan the whole time. Or if he decides to to do those things because he realizes, oh, actually, Spider-Man is a good person and I need to, I, you know, I respect and honor him now, mm-hmm. which is kind of how that whole thing plays and, out. And maybe he just always has an entourage photographing him. So he conveniently had those photos to leave behind. <laughs> yeah. He really had to, he had to, he had to get on the old uh, electric typewriter and bang out that confession. It didn't look real very quick. long. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. Like did Craven have a Commodore 64 with a printer? Like probably not. <laughs> it's, I mean, whatever he does have, it does very nice calligraphy. Uh, the the lettering on his confession is fancy. It is very yeah. fancy. I bet that Craven is very concerned with a nice penmanship. Cons- oh yeah, yeah. Considering being descended of, of Russian aristocracy, I mean, maybe not so much with the clothing choices, but the handwriting. <laughs> it's interesting to me, and this this continues in this kind of what is going on in real life versus what is going on in people's heads. And even to the extent of what is going on between people in their own heads, there seems to be several moments in these these six issues to not to not necessarily focus on the back three mm-hmm. where maybe somebody is psychically projecting to somebody else. But it's kind of it's kind of vague in that, like, Spider-Man gets a spidey sense, knows where Craven is. At least that makes sense. But there's bits where Craven is like, I'm coming after you and Vermin suddenly gets kind of scared in a, a completely separate panel. I think a lot of the nature of reality in this comic being somewhat fluid and the excuse kind of being the the herb potions of Craven and just maybe not necessarily having the most reliable narrator, since this is also Craven, who's mostly telling us the story. 
I that's one of the parts about this I I find the the most fascinating and that well well like I, I love the good Spider-Man moment and I just love the the story between or about Craven and the fact that this is just kind of a comic that is a one and done wrap itself up the fact that I'm not entirely certain if all of it is happening in real life or not at at some points is really interesting. Basically, anytime I see a wild animal that's not stuffed, I assume someone's hallucinating in this comic. <laughs> yeah, that that does make a degree of sense. I, I I think that there's an unspoken thing in here, which I did not grasp so much when I was younger reading this, but certainly on later rereads, I sort of put together. You talked about the comics code last time. And how this got through the comics code. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing the comics code would not allow is drugs. Right. Like straight up drugs. Mm -hmm. And my sense of this book is that everybody is in some kind of altered mental state. That, Mm -hmm. That Craven is his herbs and potions are essentially performance enhancing and mind altering drugs. Mm hmm. That Spider-Man has been drugged heavily mm-hmm. to keep him sedated for two weeks, and Vermin is is in some kind of like permanently altered mental state. Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, he was experimented upon to have his power, so it's possible that yeah. No, yeah. I I think you're completely right. I think, and it, it, I think that tends to track with the Mary Jane segments tending to seem the most realistic and grounded i think she's kind of the only one who is not Mm -hmm. man i kept thinking that mary jane was going to get a cool moment and i'm still really bummed about it Mm -hmm. yeah i mean they literally just hug and say i'm home at the end do they just hug? they just hug christy (laughs) well i mean i i meant i meant in issue six obviously in issue five uh there is an implied more than hug but that that part is very weird to me. Not even because <laughs> not even because of that, but because at no point after two weeks in a grave does Spider Man say, "I'm starving." Right, <laughs> right. Or like he doesn't take a shower. Yeah, Mary Jane <laughs> takes a shower, and I'm like, my dude would be covered in dirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm starving would probably be the first thing. And then oh, when he comes out of the sewers after having been in the sewers and just like gives her a big old hug, I'm like, that, you would not be touching. <laughs> that's what love is. <laughs> At least in a yeah. in a mid '80s Spider-Man comic. Just just copy and paste the narration balloon where she's saying, "I know what I signed up for." <laughs> in that. <laughs> uh. Matt, I'm glad we had you on. I feel like uh, after we published last episode, I was like, we we barely told any goofs. We are gonna we're gonna completely tank because we just <laughs> talked very serious about this comic. I, I mean, it's it is a serious story. It is yeah. a it is a very it might be the most serious of all the ones we covered. I mean, I think one of our complaints was that all the DC things we cover are dour. Yeah. So uh, we we tended instead to <laughs> to cover a Marvel as opposed to covering a nice DC story. <laughs> Um, I I think you're right to observe that that Spider-Man doesn't joke around a lot in this mm-hmm. because I think it fits the mold of what I would call the Spider-Man is upset story. It is. This is the the Spider-Man equivalent of like a O'Brien must suffer episode of DS9. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And and every once in a while Spider-Man has a story where he is pushed to the limit of his own 
personal pain and somebody around him has died or otherwise been in pain to the point where he's just serious and mad. Mm-hmm. And that's that's when you know that this that's like the very special episode of Spider-Man. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. There's even there's even bits where he mentions like I, you know, he he'll do like a little joke and then have an inner monologue of of like why do I always rely upon jokes and Oh yeah, that <laughs> oh, little bit. I was like, "Oh man, he tells one <laughs> yuck and then he like kicks himself about it." <laughs> I was kind of rooting for him. I'm like, "No, that's just your deal, bud." Like you that's right. Come on. Friendly. <laughs> friendly neighborhood. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that the 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 kind of temporary black costume was a really good choice for this as well. Oh yeah. It it definitely it, it, that's like the, my low-hanging fruit of like look they made they did a really good thing. I mean, he'd had it for a while even after Can you imagine Craven in the red and blue? I kind of want to now. <laughs> But I like the red and blue costume doing doing a a crime a criminal murder I think would be incredibly jarring. Right. I th- I think the the whole idea also that the symbiote costume mm-hmm. I, well it's it's not a retcon per se but the the symbiote costume made Spider-Man more intense and angry. Mm-hmm. Right. As depicted most Notably in the Death of Gene DeWolf story, mm-hmm. where he comes very close to killing the Sin Eater after Gene DeWolf is killed. And even though the symbiote suit wasn't what he was wearing anymore, I feel like stories that came in the year or two after were still kind of trying to capture that. Where Pete's got to just be pushed to a limit where he's got to decide whether to cross, you know, one of his moral lines, mm-hmm. which is another one of those kind of 80s. Nobody calls the mid 80s the dark age of comics, but they kind of are. Uh, I feel like I've heard that before because, you know, you always hear about the, the there's always the gold, gold and silver bronze and then people yeah. just kind of say modern or whatever. But then a few yeah. people have tried to make these extra delineations. I think maybe, some people like to say the Iron Age or the Dark Age or... I don't know. I think I think people are just really really like to classify. <laughs> uh, this was maybe supposed to originally be a Batman story, from what I read. Like J.M. Demattis pitched it to DC solely on the fact that he wanted a cool comic where someone crawls out of a grave, and he was like, Batman would totally crawl out of a grave. Yeah. And I wonder if some of these story beats would have been almost perfect for that. Like, bet you know, Batman has a moment where he doesn't want to cross his line. I feel like you could do maybe even something. I mean, if you're going to do hallucinogens, you could have the scarecrow. It just seems like this would have, this would have worked pretty well either way, but I like, I got to give him kudos for making this still seem like a story where like, yeah, like uh, Spider-Man's in this. It relates more recently to events that happened to him, such as the death of Ned Leeds and kind of slotting into those three runs of, of Spider-Man in a, in a, a way that didn't feel quite cookie cutter or copy and pasted, but still kind of had his original tones of story. I lo- I I am fascinated by the fact that this started with superhero crawls out of grave, <laughs> just as a this is an elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, I I think I have two points about the this originally being a Batman story. Mm-hmm. I think first of all, if this had originally been a Batman story, we might remember it, but it would not be held in the same regard. Agreed. Because it's not enough. 
part of why this is such a well-remembered Spider-Man story is that it's such a tonal shift for Spider-Man. It's such mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. an unusual and notable Spider-Man story. Whereas for Batman, especially post-Bronze Age, this would have kind of just fit in with what else was being published at the time, kind of. Also, it was the hand of fate that determined that this was not a Batman story because 20 years later, we had to get the real story where Batman comes out of a grave, Batman R.I.P. Oh, that's true. I forgot. He could, that was the very first Batman story I ever got in issues was Batman R.I.P. And boy, that's not like the world's greatest first Batman story in issues because <laughs> no. it's in the middle of a run and it kind of relies upon a lot of other knowledge. But I just remember going, oh, he crawls out of his grave and now he's rainbow colored. This is sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Well, who, why, who wouldn't want their first Batman story to be about his backup personality? <laughs> Oh, it was, and this is, this is, uh, in an era where I, in my small town in Missouri, it was not the world's easiest thing to get back issues. So I just kind of had to rely upon looking up what had happened before. And that was not <laughs> super easy, but you know, that's totally true. And, what, and what's, what's wild is that Batman RIP, maybe not to everybody, but I think to a lot of people is kind of, were regarded as like a pivotal Batman story. So they did, they did that right in a way that, yeah, this would have seemed like maybe like a pastiche of the two Batman stories that were timeless and incredibly well regarded that had just come before it if it would have come at the exact same time. Yeah, I th- I think it would have been I don't know, it just would have been another story, yeah, I think. Agreed. Yeah. So, we mentioned last episode that I needed to ask you this this episode. Is this cuz you talked about the tonal differences. Is this one of the best Spider-Man stories. It's one of the better stories that has appeared in a Spider-Man comic. I'll, I'll put it that way. All right. If, Fair. if I were, if I were going to make a top 10, uh, well, actually I would say, I don't know. I, I can't even remember when comics Alliance closed down, but when just before comics Alliance closed down, we were on vacation. I, <laughs> when would that have been? 2014. Right, that was the first time. I I think most recently it closed down in 2017. I think it was in 2016 ish that I did a series of articles for Comics Alliance called "The Artist Spider Man," mm-hmm. and essentially it was a rundown of the artists that I considered to be the quintessential Spider Man artists. So Steve Ditko, John Romita Jr. Uh, I had uh. More recently, Mark Bagley yep. in there, um, John Romita Sr., obviously. And I included Mike Zeck in that list almost strictly because of his work on Craven's Last Hunt. Yeah. it's He drew other Spider-Man comics here and there, but I think he helped define an era of Spider-Man because... Spider-Man comics were chasing this for a while after this, even up through the introduction of Venom and all of that stuff. Um, I, I think he was as defining for an era of Spider-Man as Todd McFarlane was uh, four or five years later. So visually, I think it's a very important Spider-Man story. I think it is the defining story for Craven the Hunter, yeah. undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. 
The the only thing that gives me pause about calling it one of the best Spider-Man stories is because the character of Spider-Man himself is not incidental to it, but maybe the second or third most important character in it. Mm-hmm. True. I like that answer. Very yeah. diplomatic. <laughs> if I were going to hand somebody, if I was going to tell somebody, read these Spider-Man stories and you'll get Spider-Man, I don't think this would be in the bunch. It would be a lot of old Lee and Ditko stories. It would be some stories from Brand New Day. It would be him driving around the Spider-Mobile because you need to see that. You have to see it. It's just required. <laughs> it, it, it would be that kind of stuff. It would be more of what I consider essential Spider-Man, which mm-hmm. this is such a shift from what Spider-Man is. I feel like if you gave somebody uh, this story and said, hey, here's Spider-Man, they might get the wrong idea. True. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If we gave it to somebody who's literally never seen a Spider-Man, read a Spider-Man, this would this would confuse the heck out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it has elements to it mm-hmm. that are very, very Spider-Man. Somebody he knows died. True. For example, mm-hmm. that's as Spider-Man as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> Peak Spidey. Yeah, but tonally and and otherwise, maybe not so much. That is, I think that is a completely fair answer. Mm-hmm. I I thought this would have more Spider-Man in it to be honest, I guess. When I when I was like, "Hey, we got to read mm-hmm. this. It's considered one of the one of like like a pretty pivotal story." I think I even said a pivotal Spider-Man story because I thought it had more Spider-Man in it. Read it and went, "Wow, this is very much about Craven and <laughs> the the villain Vermin, who is interesting in that he does not come up a ton after this as far as i know i know that he they used him because they created him and they were like let's do it again yeah i mean i think he shows up in other stuff so i guess reed richards didn't really help out that much um yeah (laughs) spider-man definitely says at the end reed richards will help you i i joked in the summary (laughs) earlier that you know noted guy who can reverse irreversible conditions reed richards (laughs) who lives with uh his best friend who is still the thing (laughs) <laughs> I, I I certainly don't know of any other story where vermin is so important that yeah. vermin where where vermin is so explored. I guess is the way to put it. Right. I feel like he's got to just job after this. Yeah. He's he he's an incidental villain appearing in like crossovers and stuff. After this, he right. becomes a member of the Revengers at one point. He was just kind of hanging out in Secret Invasion. And fear itself. Mm-hmm. He's he's one of those villains that you can just kind of pluck off a list right. and throw in the background. <laughs> but it, it it seems like he's kind of Dematis and Zek's pet character, mm-hmm. for lack yeah. of a better way of putting it. Where, you know, they'll pick him up and use him. But other writers and artists will just kind of use him as filler, maybe at most. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I almost don't know if you could, I'm sure, I'm sure there's more stories you could write about vermin, but this just seems like once you've, once you've kind of put him in here, you, you maybe have taken him as far as, as far as he can go. Yeah. I mean, it's, he, he, he doesn't really do anything that isn't already something filled by another Spider-Man villain. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, cause the guy who lives in the sewers and eats people. Yep. There, there's already a guy. <laughs> there, is, there is that guy, and he's just 
more interesting by the basis of his origin and everything yeah. he's done. Well, and, and I mean, the lizard, I, I'm just going to say it's the lizard. It is the lizard. <laughs> and he didn't just eat people. He ate his boy. He, ate, he did. He ate his own son, Christy. Oh, no. The son is back? The son is back. The yeah. son is back. <laughs> okay. It's complicated. <laughs> the son is now a lizard? Uh, uh, yeah, he's a little boy lizard now. <laughs> he's now a little boy lizard. Okay, lizard was our, was our boy who developed a bond with wasp. Am I right? In Back se- in, in Secret Wars. This was prior to eating his boy, if I remember correctly. <laughs> this was well before he Well ate before his boy. he ate his boy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, in Secret Wars he was he was the kind of the goof like a goof character. Yeah. And they decided later, like, let's not do that and, oh. and make some very serious choices about <laughs> okay. his actions. Actually the the lizard eating his boy story, Shed, mm-hmm. was part of a, a long Craven's story, where uh, Craven, Craven's kids mm-hmm. had come together to bring together a bunch of animal-themed Spider-Man villains as a way to kind of grind Spider-Man down, so that they could then participate in the Grim Hunt. Was this the Gauntlet? The Gauntlet came first, and then the Grim Hunt came after. Right. This was yeah. this was during the the brand new day era, which was yeah. I just couldn't remember when it was. That was great. Well, Matt, do you, we, before we go on to, I think a record breaking number of questions or at least pretty close to it, do we want to maybe hit up those accolades? Yeah, accolades. All right, Christy, you go first. Okay. Best line. You know, I normally go for the goofy ones, and I think I've said this on a, a couple of the last few episodes, but um, th- this one is one of, Craven's, I guess, thoughts right after he lets Spider-Man go free. And he says, every man, every woman, every nation, every age has its spider. You have been mine. What a burden. What an honor. That is a really well-written line. And that is very unlike you. You do do tend (laughs) to do the incredibly goofy lines. There really aren't many here. (laughs) No, there really aren't. I think maybe you could say some of the stuff that Vermin says is a little silly, but it's just kind of sad in context. Yeah, yeah. No, I feel like that's like low-hanging fruit. Yeah. It's also highly repetitive. It is. It is a lot of things. I'm like, which time that he said it? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of like internalized vermin as as a as like Gollum and I still am kind of standing yeah. behind that. <laughs> fair, fair. All right, Chris, your best line. My best line is um Spider-Man when he encounters two of Craven's Craven's men, he says, and a part of me wants to. Wants to tear them apart to get back at him. But it's a very small part. And then he completely mm-hmm. just leaves them alone. And that was very much like I kind of identified with Spider-Man in that moment, and it was a very, I think it it kind of encapsulates the Spider-Man of this story, where he is so very close to doing some things that he would ultimately regret, but he decides, like, no, I'm not going to. Yeah. And I think that's that's good, kind of good advice for living as well. I think that there's always moments where you you very much want to do something that you're going to regret and decide no, this is a small part of me that wants to do this. And I just, the way that it was even framed in in the pictures where they looked like completely terrified of him and he kind of had this moment of well, it's just a very small part and then <laughs> leaves him alone. Matt, what is your best line? Uh, my best line is also a Craven narration thought caption box. Mm-hmm. 
And it's it's aside from the repetition of Tiger Tiger, which becomes Spider Spider. Right. I think it's the most poetic line in the whole thing. It's when he says, My spider is gone. Now there's only a man. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's really good. It it's because it's it's a play on the name Spider-Man, mm-hmm. first of all. Mm-hmm. It's saying that he's not seeing this figure in front of him as this mythical spider anymore and that he's finally kind of taking the blinders off to see the humanity of a person and uh i just really love that it it's fantastic i Mm -hmm. i have to agree with you on that one it's really really good yeah the whole point of the story (laughs) right there that one line literally (laughs) all right moving on to greatest hero Chris, who's your greatest hero? This one was like, this is not. A, this is like the villain comic. Yeah, I had to give it to. This is going to be just very obvious. I just had to give it to Spider Man for showing Craven kind of his moments of, like, kind of being the better guy, like sparing Vermin. He spares Vermin like three times in this in this comic, and it's it's like something that if we saw in wrestling, we would call the face like a complete you know, like a dope for like falling for it again and again, <laughs> but, but Spider-Man does it. And it just makes me love him even more. Yeah. And so I, I even just like the last couple issues was where I really like latched on to the Spider-Man of this story being not so present in the entire comic as he was. Well, I guess we have a daily double because mine is also Spider-Man specifically, you know, him just, very smartly thinking, hey, rather than battling Vermin like in his in his prime territory, let's just drag him into the daylight. I'll, I'll web him up and hand him over to the police and offer to call Reed Richards. And like, I don't need to pummel him to death in the sewers. I just just sneak him on up. I'm like, oh, what a nice nonviolent way to solve this. Way to go, Spider Man. Plus, he saves him quickly from being hit by a truck when he mm-hmm. was disoriented. So yes, that was Daily Double. We forgot to do the <laughs> the Daily Double noise. <laughs> That's definitely the Daily Double noise. <laughs> it's hard to duplicate. <laughs> you kind of sounded like you were maybe doing like the. <laughs> you always do it. I tried to do it. I'm mad. No, I. It's bad. I love it. <laughs> All right, Matt. Are it, we? It, it was approaching reggaeton, <laughs> but I I love that. Matt, are we making it a triple, or do you or do you have something probably more unique? Oh no, baby! It's a turkey. Oh yeah. <laughs> See, I turkey. told you, turkey. That's what we should call it. Oh, when yeah, when you, you made fun of me. I when did. I, said I did. Turkey. This was this was off air. I think was it on air? No, I think you made fun of me on air. Oh, He's God. like, no, we're not calling it a turkey. I'm the worst, uh, <laughs> Christy. I'm a hundred percent with you on this. <laughs> Being um, overruled on my own podcast. I, I, it's absolutely Spider Man, mm-hmm. and this. I said this story does the Spider-Man thing, uh, and it's part of what you might use to call it a great Spider-Man story, because what makes Spider-Man work is when he overcomes things through his innate goodness, Mm -hmm. not just, you know, by powering through or punching through. And so that moment where he's, like punching vermin and and yelling at him kind of getting out all his frustrations about having been buried alive 
on him and then just has that moment where he says no and he looks over at Craven and and realizes that you know he's being kind of tricked into doing this he's being led into giving up his his moral standards at that moment actually serving to change Craven's impression of him change his mind and make him spare Spider-Man like that is that good superhero stuff mm-hmm. that I love like more so than beating up bad guys and stopping crimes I want to see superheroes being the example and that is the that is Spider-Man being the example I love it Absolutely. I, I think that a lot of, a lot of su- even superhero comics can get su- a little cynical about superhero comics. And it is nice to literally just see like, like a sort of distilled superhero moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's extremely good. All right. But my coolest moment, uh, definitely is not exemplary of like that, uh, superhero moment. Cause my coolest <laughs> moment is when he picks up the elephant. <laughs> Uh, Spider-Man picks up the elephant. <laughs> I am not sure if that is a stuffed elephant, because Craven climbed on it, or if it's an actual elephant, but he just picks up the whole elephant to shake Craven off of it. <laughs> and I thought that was so cool. <laughs> I think it was stuffed, but also, like like I said earlier, I who knows whether <laughs> any of these animals are real or not. Uh, uh, all right, Chris, what is your coolest moment? My coolest moment is is the bit that Matt just explained. I <laughs> strangely enough, where oh. I said the bit where Spider-Man relents and is like, "No, I'm not going to do it." But that kind of happens twice. Yeah. Once in once outside the sewer and once in the sewer. Mm-hmm. But uh it, I I grew up as a little kid loving superheroes because I just wanted to be good and I wanted to see them do good too. And so I still like have a fist pump moment. <laughs> so uh, much like what Matt said, not not to belabor the point, that was kind of my my coolest moment. It wasn't, you know, is it stylish or like explosive? No, but it was, I was just like, yes, Spidey. <laughs> All right, Matt, your coolest moment. I mean, my coolest moment is that same one, but not to repeat myself. I will say what I thought was probably the coolest moment when I was like thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> Which is when Craven, you know, reveals, or I guess Spider-Man shows up and Craven's already unmasked, also wearing the Spider-Man costume. And Spider-Man's punching him in the face and he's got the blood trickling out of his mouth and his nose. And he just says, don't you see? I finally won. Yeah. Because he, he you know, ensnared Spider-Man perfectly in his trap. Mm-hmm. And I used to, you know... You know how teens are. They always, they're like, what if the villain won? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, in, in my youth, I th- would have probably thought that, or I know I've thought that was the coolest moment. We, we, I think we've joked about like the, when you're a kid, you just like these, like, I want the, the hero to do good. I want the bad guy to lose. And then when you're like a teenager, you're like, I want these like gray complicated stories and then i yeah. feel like as an adult again i'm like i'm tired of this i just want the hero to win and the bad guy to lose yeah like as a teen you think it would be cool and different if the bad guy won <laughs> right and then you realize that there are lots of stories where that happens and it actually gets tired <laughs> it does get tiresome yeah um so my very favorite 
accolade is going to be the Crusher Creel Award for Silly Villainy, which this is packed with villainy, but I'm not sure how much of it is silly. Uh, I've definitely got some silly villainy, but do we want to start with Matt on this one? Yeah, Matt, you go first. Oh, the obvious examples for me of silly villainy is the, not just the confession, but the like confession handed to the police in basically a bow. (laughs) It's like, it is like a gift (laughs) where it's just like, oh, I got to get this. I got to get this out before uh, the papers go to press (laughs) because otherwise Spider-Man is going to spend a day. Everybody's going to think he killed people. You know, big ups to that newspaper editor. He was just really wanting to help out Spidey there for like his 10 seconds of you of like being in the story. I mean, also, uh, I guess not sure I thought I would be saying this, but uh, props to the police who handed that over to a newspaper really fast. Yeah, they did. Oh, like, no, they, the, the NYPD is leaking like a sieve. That's <laughs> true. Just to clear Spider-Man, a uh, somewhat wanted vigilante at times. All right. So we have somewhat of a daily double here with the silly villainy. You want to do the noise? No, that's right. I did it too. Yeah. I can't even remember how it goes. I've watched so much Jeopardy. Would you, would you, I will do a daily double for you. I love it. It's Matt, perfect. can we clip that and just <laughs> oh, <laughs> throw yeah. it in? <laughs> um, but specifically, mine is the fact that he had someone take a photo of him, not Craven, not just like in the Spidey costume, but putting it on himself in the middle of getting dressed. Well, I think Craven is probably proud enough of his body that he's like, yeah, definitely take this. <laughs> <laughs> He's he's like putting on the sleeve with like a flexed bicep. Uh, so adding to this, it, it's going to be another turkey for all for all Craven. I'm I'm embracing it. Uh, I, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the bit where he jumps on the elephant before Spidey tips it over and mm-hmm. like roars his triumph, and of course. He's just, like, having a bunch of internal monologues, so Spider-Man and Vermin have no idea why he suddenly just jumped (laughs) on an elephant and yelled. I just thought it was completely goofy. And Spider-Man tips him over, and he has this look on his face like, oh, Spidey just ruined my fun. Like, for a moment. Before he kind of, like, goes over and, like, touches Spider-Man's chin, and Spider-Man is still like, I don't have your internal monologue, so all of this is very Like, I don't understand why you're stroking my face. Right, like, I, I I don't know this right now. It's... The fact that he seems to think that everybody knows what he's thinking for like a like one page is kind of <laughs> silly to me. I think you guys probably have a better one, but <laughs> uh, that was that. Yeah, Cra- Craven gets it. I don't. I gave it to Vermin last issue, but I don't think he got to do any fun slapstick stuff like he got to do last no, he time. Just mostly gets beaten up. He mostly gets very beaten up. <laughs> I I have a new contender for coolest moment. Real oh, quick. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, this is. Uh, irony man matt uh <laughs> coolest moment it's uh on the very last page or next to last page where peter returns to finally be home with mary jane right before the hug mary jane's just chilling at home looking at a photo album yeah. <laughs> she's just like reading the photo album oh goodness <laughs> oh <laughs> 
<laughs> That's like <laughs> just waiting for Peter to come home. Yeah, yeah. JM J. put in, in his in his script like Mike Jastrow are doing something like really sad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know. There's a, there's also a random picture of Flash Thompson in there, <laughs> along with pictures of her and Peter. Yeah, why not? Flash was their their bud, kind of. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna get into questions that are. Uh, I feel like mostly from other podcasters, but we'll, and, and some, some who are not. So our first run, uh, is from Xavier Files. Uh, it's a well documented fact that the average person swallows eight spiders per year. Zach, that's not true. That's a made up statistic. But how much of this is due to Craven the Hunter being a wild <laughs> outlier in the data set? That's the only way it makes it eight is because he did like 2000. <laughs> yeah. 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 And- I would, I would, I would agree with this, this fact. I don't think it's very much of a question. Just a funny goof that yeah. we had to say. Zach just, Zach just wanted to make us say a goof. Thank you, Zach. Uh, as, as Jeff Bezos is to the mean income. Uh, yep. Cra- <laughs> Craven the hunter is to swallowed spiders. Oh boy. Yep. You know, you can sleep easier at night knowing Craven's had your share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unlike not sleeping at night knowing that Jeff Bezos has your share. <laughs> All right, the second one comes from uh, pal Robert Secundus, uh, who I'm going to mention probably in about 10 minutes for something else. But would J. Jonah Jameson work better as a manager or an authority figure in a professional wrestling program? Matt, you have an actual wrestling podcast while the two of us are just more of like a general fan. So I think maybe you should start. He absolutely would have to be a manager because he takes sides and uh, I know there have been plenty of evil authority figures in wrestling, mm-hmm. but all those characters are bad and they should go away. <laughs> we definitely don't need another one. I think the last good one was Dario Cueto, and I think like we're <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're we're done after that. No one's no one's quite had it as good as Dario Cueto. Like all authority figures in wrestling should be Jack Tunney like figureheads, mm-hmm. and J. Jonah Jameson should be. You know, a cigar chomping, yelling, interfering in matches manager. God, I really want that as a manager. The cigar chomping would be, it'd be so old school. It'd be so good. (laughs) Um, Next one is from Luke Hare at Coltreg. What would you buy Craven if you had to get him a birthday gift? He does expect you to get him a gift. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, he has a lot of stuff already. He de- he definitely I, has a lot maybe, of stuff. Maybe a nice pair of slacks. Because <laughs> you know he does not have any. I would I would get him a Groupon for like a boudoir photo shoot. Because <laughs> yes! you know he would be into that. He would. He would. I'm trying to think if Craven the Hunter is already pretty into maintaining a strong beard. Or if that's something he hadn't thought of and I could get him like like a beard set. Because I'm not – I mean, his beard always looks good, but I don't know if that's just yeah. comics or not. Mm-hmm. S- some nice beard oil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, always nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Christy, you want to read the next question? Yeah. Our next listener has two questions. So uh, Asimov's fangirl asks, do you think the impact of this story is affected by Craven resurrection years later? No, I don't. Because one, it it took a long time. 
if it had been a Magneto resurrection where it happened literally the month after Grant Morrison's run on X-Men ended. Oh, yep. <laughs> um, that that detracted from that. But this happened nearly 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And you always know a comic book character is going to come back. But it got a nice a nice chunk of time to really you know, submit itself mm-hmm. as a great story. So I don't, I don't think him coming back has detracted from it. No, I don't think so either. And I, I think they, I, I think they've done some interesting stuff with him since not even just in Spider-Man. I think, I, I honestly think his appearances in squirrel girl have been like some of my top favorite. Craven <laughs> content. It is so wild to think about how Craven is still like 75 years old in those comics. Yeah. <laughs> That's that <is laughs> so- true. Uh, and the second question was who is more dangerous craven or i'll read the full question or kurt connor aka the lizard who ate a boy who we've already mentioned (laughs) as i'm a fangirl definitely a war rocket ajax listener (laughs) Uh, uh, okay craven the general answer is craven if you happen to be his boy the lizard (laughs) (laughs) oh jeez I feel like the lizard eating his boy is the only time I ever laugh about a child being eaten. <laughs> it's just so much. Um, we have just regular Luke, who is uh, we've. This is the second Luke who's asked questions. Hello, Luke. Luke McClung is Craven the Spider-Man villain with the best handle on Peter's Spidey sense, not counting the symbiotes who know how to jam it. That's an interesting question. Yeah, he does seem to get it. Like he's he's he even like literally planned for it in this issue where he was ho- chilling for how who knows how long in an empty apartment just knowing that he would get found because he's inherently dangerous. And well, he and then also like no 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 you know you can come with me right now it's not dangerous your spidey sense would be going so that might be true. Yeah, I mean he he certainly seems to have the most acute awareness of it. Mm-hmm. Of anybody else, I, I will say there are other villains who seem to also know about it. Like, the Green Goblin knows about it. Sure. And there are other villains who try to throw stuff at Spider-Man to kind of almost use it against him. The I'm thinking of Mysterio here. Right. But I, it does seem like Kraven... Is is the least intimidated by the fact that Spider Man has the spider sense. He's just like, hey, I know you got it, and I'm going to work around it because mm-hmm. I'm great at what I do. <laughs> Very true. All right, and next question comes from Michael Hyde at Michael Hyde. How would each of you rank the various Cravens? Original flavor, sons, daughter, clone. I don't know that I have a good answer to this, so I will defer to you guys. I tr- I haven't read a ton of the other Craven stuff, so this was a toughie for me. I had to kind of look a bunch of them up, and I still don't oh, you know You prepared. If- you did your homework. I read these questions today. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know if I know enough to rank a ton of them. I know him and his clone for sure, because I've been reading, I've been reading Amazing Spider-Man since the Dan Slott run, but starting with uh, big time, which was after Grim Hunt. So I know of his clone, who I think you can probably rank last. I'm not sure, but it's he's not that interesting yet. Yeah, I, I, the clone is not not the best Craven, right? By any stretch. I mean, I think original flavor Craven is at the top. That's tops. That's true. Mm-hmm. 
And then I think all the kids are interesting in their own ways. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite of the kids is probably Alexi, who is also known as Alyosha, uh-huh. who was the Craven in that spectacular Spider-Man run, but he's also the Craven that popped up in Matt Fraction's Punisher run. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, that I-, I like that version of Craven quite a bit. I think after that, I would probably put Anna Kravinoff, mm-hmm. who was the Craven who appeared in the Grim Hunt, and I think a couple stories before that. And then... Probably the other son would go next. And you know how much I care about him because I can't remember his name. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I can't even remember the clothes. It's Vladimir. Vladimir is the other son. All right. So unlike Doritos, the original is best. (laughs) Whoa. Making a statement about Cool Ranch Doritos. I am. (laughs) Uh, There's, there's, We have a lot of of Dorito infighting in in our general daily lives, I feel like. (laughs) Next question comes from Chris Kaiser at the Kai's Craven normally seems appealing because he's kind of a silly outlandish concept. Is this story the only good version of serious Craven? No, no, I don't think so either. I think he's got, I didn't think he was particularly silly in his original appearance. I mean, not more so or less so than kind of everything that was happening in the, the Lee Ditko run. Yeah. And, and, in that, in the story where an early Lee Ditko appearance gets revisited in the Deadpool story where Deadpool goes back and uh, back in time mm-hmm. to essentially be Spider-Man in a Lee Ditko Spider-Man story. Yep. <laughs> Craven is the villain of that story, and he's just the straight man to Deadpool. I mean, he's <laughs> he's in a silly story, but... Craven is wholly serious throughout that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, again, those J.M. DeMattis Craven stories that came about a decade after Craven's Last Hunt, where he brought in his son, but everybody was confused for a little bit, thinking that that was Sergei Kravenov. Those stories are great and presented quite seriously. So mm-hmm. there are other good serious Craven stories. We got a fun question here from CJ Tor uh, at CJ Tor. The three of you are being hunted by Craven. The last survivor gets to go home free. You each get to pick one weapon or object. What do you choose? I choose nothing because, as we have already canonically stated, I will die before you, Chris. <laughs> Matt, Matt, this is <laughs> this is an in joke. I promise it's less serious than it seems. I think we've said it on the podcast several times. Look, I I, I judge no in joke. Uh, I I have personally died num- numerous times on War Rocket Inn. So. Well, it's just, it's a it's a it, it's specifically a thing in the marriage between Christy and I where she says, "I am definitely going to die before you," but it's spilled over onto our podcast. You say that it's a joke, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, but if I had to choose a weapon, I don't or, or object. object, object. I don't know. Maybe a bowl of spider goo <laughs> to distract him for <laughs> a tasty snack. Uh, Craven doesn't seem afraid of a lot of things, so that's pretty different. There's the bit where he's afraid of like the horde of spiders, but I don't know if I could puppeteer something together. And I think that he's kind of over that now. Picture of his mom. Oof. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm picking that one. That's so mean. Uh, that's, a, that's a similar answer to the one I had, which was I was going to fashion myself a mask of Tsar Nicholas II. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He talks about Trotsky a lot. I'm like, could you like somehow like make a Trotsky boogeyman? Because he seems to really <laughs> yeah. not like Trotsky. Yeah. Oh. The last question comes from at trivia lad Tim Matum. How does Craven's lion head vest rank in terms of super villain outerwear? I mean, it's a it's too signature. I don't know. I feel like it's great. Yeah, I, I really love it. I yeah, it, it, I'm not about animal cruelty, but I am about that vest. <laughs> it it ranks high in villain sartorial choices. It really does. It's well, you know, a lot of like those those early Ditko outfits are just all so good. So it's it's really hard to say that it's not. They're just they're all like excellent. Yeah. Ditko could I draw mean, a mean outfit. People love to make fun of Mysterio, but Mysterio's costume is great actually, and don't ever tell me anything <laughs> different. Well it's yeah, people people have made fun of it and then they're also like he looks so totally great in this new movie and i'm like it's it's not that different <laughs> it's, it's, that's that's his costume, that's his costume. <laughs> i mean i have a special fondness in my heart for a porcupine so oh for for porcupine's costume yes. so yeah it's this this is <laughs> this is objectively better than better that, than that. <laughs> all right well that is all of our questions for the day and i suppose that's going to begin our wrap up Matt, you were so great to come on the show, and yeah, we are thank you so much. We're so thankful. I had a blast. It's always hard to try to gauge guests coming on Chris's on Infinite Earths because we cover crossovers, which a lot of like really like interesting comic people don't like, <laughs> <laughs> and and you never know what someone's favorite is, so it's it's kind of hard to to judge. But I was like, oh, it would be really cool to have Matt on to talk about Craven's Last Hunt because I'm sure he likes it. <laughs> Yeah, I I certainly have plenty to say about that one. So mm-hmm. you chose well. All right. So tell our readers, our listeners, more about where they can find your work. Sure. So I have kind of an online repository where you can find links to everything. That is mattdwilson.net. If you just go there, you can find links to my comics, which Chris mentioned Copernicus Jones and everything will be okay. It also has links to my books, which are the Supervillain Handbook, the Supervillain Field Manual, and Supreme Villainy, the life story of King Oblivion PhD, the greatest supervillain who ever lived. There's also links to my other podcasts, which include Warrocket Ajax, Movie Fighters, Smark of the Beast, and the occasionally updated ghost of a chance where my wife tries to convince me that ghosts are real she has not done it yet i am a huge fan of ghost of a chance i have a story i need to write in okay we maybe we will record it again someday (laughs) uh and it also has links to all my social medias i'm mostly on twitter which you can find me at uh the matt d wilson on twitter excellent i we encourage all of you to pick up Everything will be okay selfishly because it's a comic that contains me, Chris Edelman, in one of the panels from the Not Kickstarter project. Not hard to project. figure out which one. No, it it's very it. much looks like me. I was like, yep, there I am. And it's a really excellent comic as well. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are uh, at Chris's Pod on Twitter. We are at Chris's Pod on Facebook as well. You can always email us at Chris's on Infinite Earths at gmail.com. 
You can check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Chris's pod. Uh, we have lots of fun rewards at many levels, including being able to put a suggestion in to be voted upon by the listeners for a crossover that we cover. That's um, actually going to come up fairly shortly for, I believe, from our yeah. very early adopters. You can also, if you support, uh, suggest an accolade that we will have to permanently add to I'm the show. I'm so excited because in a couple months we're going to have one. We definitely are. As far as other projects, I ha- kind of have one coming up. Christy, would you mind if I if I mentioned it? Oh, yeah. Go for it. So deciding to dive in and go far over my head, uh, at least with help, myself and friend of the show, Robert Secundus, are going to be annotating House of X and Powers of X, the new... Uh, comics coming out from Jonathan Hickman and crew. Um, that's going to start appearing on the uh, Xavier Files website probably by the end of this week, which is going to be before this podcast comes out. So you'll see it before you hear about it. Oh, I'll edit, you'll type. Yep. There we go. <laughs> it's going to be a lot to talk about. <laughs> All right. Well, Matt, thank you again for coming on the show. We absolutely enjoyed it and we i'm thrilled that you came on and gave us some really good insights that we definitely could have gotten ourselves uh well thank you for having me and to anyone listening you have listened to a podcast with me on it because you've heard my cat harrison i'm sure (laughs) he's 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 going at it in the other room he's delightful we love it All right. Thank you all for listening, and until next time... Slay your enemies, and all you desire shall be yours.